Welcome to this message from Life Assembly, a thriving church in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. Please visit us online at lifemn.org for more information. And now join us as we pursue Jesus together. Secretary Treasurer of Minnesota District Assembly of God. He is also on the board of directors of Minnesota School of Ministry. He has pastored and taught at various churches for more than 20 years. I'm 30 years. 30 years, okay. I'm sorry I didn't get that right, but right. 30 years. Uh, and I know there's a lot of wisdom and, and a lot of knowledge, and I know that uh, he'll be led by the Spirit this morning. And, and he is very highly uh, spoken of by Pastor Dale. I know that uh, Pastor Dale has leaned upon you uh, various times. He shared that uh, with me, and, and um, he's really super excited for you to share with you this morning. So it's an honor and privilege to have Pastor Jim here with you. Give me, uh, allow me to give him a warm welcome this morning. Amen. Thanks, Pastor. God bless you. Thanks for the kind words. Well, good morning, everybody. It's my first time here. Um, I actually took the seat of Greg Hickel. How many of you remember Greg Hickel? That would have been a few years back. They're now living in Arizona, but uh, Greg Hickel was the secretary treasurer. How many of you know that he has big shoes? And they're big shoes to fill for me, right? So, uh, but you know, Greg and Julie are great people, and I'm blessed to be here. Um, you know, it's probably wise that I tell you who I am before I get started, so you understand my sense of humor and how I, my style of preaching. Uh, I'm a PK, so we should leave right now, shouldn't we? I'm a pastor's kid. Uh, I'm going to share a little story about who I really am. I grew up in a very uh, legalistic home, if you know, understand what that means. Now, some of the younger people won't understand this, but when I was growing up, I couldn't listen to rock music. I couldn't go roller, uh, roller skating to the roller rinks. Uh, we didn't have a TV in our house for a number of years because my dad was concerned with what was on the TV. We, of course, we were not allowed to go to movies. Um, couldn't dance. I could, even at school, when my mom and dad found out that dance class was happening in the FIAD class, they would give me a, a written letter saying he's not allowed to do it. Now, how many of you know that as a kid growing up, when you're singled out like that, it's not very healthy? And so what happened is, is when I was in fifth grade, well, you need, here, here's what happened. In fourth grade, I knew something was going on in my home, but I didn't know what it was. In fifth grade, I don't know why I did it, but everybody, I went to Central Park Elementary School in Roseville, Minnesota. And at, at lunchtime, all the kids were on the playground, including me, and all the teachers were down in the teacher's lounge having lunch. And I was a bit mischievous boy, to be honest with you, and I snuck back into the school, and I went back into my classroom, and I got on my hands and knees, and I crawled on the floor up to the teacher's desk so nobody could see me through the windows. And I went to the teacher's desk, and I pulled out the file drawer. And in that file drawer, it had A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way up to the end of the alphabet. And I went to the letter F, and I pulled out James Philbeck's file. That's me. And I opened it up, and there was a note from my fourth-grade teacher, Mrs. Nelson. And she said to the, my fifth-grade teacher, her name was Mrs. McCracken, she said, whoever has little Jimmy in his class next year, you need to understand that his mom is sick. And he doesn't know, but his mom most likely has cancer. That's how I found out my mom had cancer. I closed that file up, I put it back in there, and I never said a word to anybody. I can't go home and tell my mom and dad I was going through the teacher's files during lunchtime. My mom and dad were very protective of me and my older sister. They thought, you know, if we tell you stuff, then you're going to get nervous. Well, that's probably true. So what happened is, is, in fifth grade, towards the end of fifth grade, my dad said to my sister and I, we need to go to the doctor's office and we're going to have a, a shot because they thought my mom had hepatitis C. So we went into the doctor's office and the doctor gave us these injections and then we found out a week later that she didn't, didn't have hepatitis C. So the doctor says, I think I know what it is, and I'm going to send you Mayo, to Mayo Clinic. So my mom and dad went down to Rochester for a number of days and did some tests and came back with the news that my mom had cancer of the pancreas. 
Now, how many of you know cancer of the pancreas is not a really nice, friendly cancer? My mom was pretty much the next week taken to Mayo Clinic. She went into an eight-hour surgery. Uh, they came out of the surgery. The doctor said to my dad and my grandparents, my mom's uh, parents, uh, that we did everything we could. We took out as much of the pancreas as possible, but if we would have done any more, she would have died on the table. We give her no more than two years to live. Now, I was at my grandparents' house in Pine Island, Minnesota, all that day and into the night. My dad did not get home to my grandparents' house until about 1 o'clock in the morning. And what do you suppose he did? My dad came upstairs to the bedroom where I was sleeping, sat on the other edge of the bed, woke me up. And he said, Jim, I don't know how to tell you this, but your mom's got two years or less to live. Now, why would a father do that? I'll tell you why. He was in shock. He was in serious shock. And here I am, a 12-year-old boy, having to listen to my dad tell me, maybe I was 11, I don't know, that my mother's going to die. Now, fast forward to I'm 15, age 15. So it must have happened when I was around 10 or 11. Go to age 15 on a Sunday morning, July 1st, 1979. Now, you need to know that my mom recovered very quickly from the surgery. My mom and dad decided that she would not do any kind of treatments, radiation, chemotherapy. They wanted to have her have a good two years. Uh, guess what happened after she came home from the hospital? Nine months, 12 months later, guess what? She had a baby. The doctors told them to abort the baby. My mom and dad said, no, we believe in life. And so they gave birth to my little sister, Elizabeth, which uh, her name is Beth. We call her Beth. She's be really good friends with your pastor and his wife. They pastor over in Roseville, my sister and her husband, Jim Gooden. So she was born, and she was, la I mean, she latched on to my mom, and they became like this. And approximately four and a half years later, my mother began to get really sick. And they brought in a hospital bed into our home, and they had brought in a care person. And so I'm 15 years old now, and I'm laying in bed on a Sunday morning, July 1st, 1979. It's about 7 a.m. My dad's already gone to the church because he's pastoring. And I hear my grandparents out in the living room saying she's gone. And of course, I was kind of in and out trying to hear what was going on, and I heard my grandpa say she's gone. So I got out of bed and I ran into the living room and I watched my grandfather take my mother's eyelids and close them and he took her hands and he crossed her arms on her chest and I ran back into my bedroom and of course I, I began to cry. So my grandmother comes in and tries to console me. The lady that was the care lady came in and tried to console me and I laid in that bed for a little bit that morning and I said these words. If this is the kind of love that God has... God is love. If this is God is love, my mother never smoked a cigarette in her life. She never spoke a negative word in her life. People tell me she was like an angel. People that knew her, she was an angel. And I said, if this is how God shows love, I don't want a part of it. And I made a decision in here and in here that Sunday. I knew my dad would make me go to church, but I decided I would no longer serve the Lord. How many of you know that's hard to do when you're a pastor's kid in the pastor's home? But I did, pretty much. I went to church. I would come home, and then during the week, I would hang with my friends, and I would live a life that wasn't really godly life. In fact, I sat with my best friend, Tim, and his dad, Don, and we sat down at the table when I was about 18, and he said, what are you guys going to do with your lives? And Tim and I looked at each other, and we said, we don't know. And he said, well, electronics and computers is the way to go. This would have been back in 1983. And so I signed up for a thing called DeVry Institute of Technology. Anyone ever seen that commercial on the television? I was one of the suckers that did that. <laughs> Pardon the word, but I, was, I, was, I did that. And I, I drove to Chicago, Illinois, in my 1967 Mustang, had a 289 three-speed in a beautiful car, I drove down to Chicago, and I went to school, and my dad kept calling me every day saying, son, what church are you going to go to? 
And so I said, I said to myself, okay, this is what I need to do. I'm going to go one time, and then I'll tell my dad, this is the church I'm going to, but I'll never go back. And back in the days when we had not really computers really yet, they were kind of there but not, I opened the yellow pages. Some of you might not know what that is today. I opened the yellow pages, I went to churches, and I put my finger on it, Lombard Assembly of God, and on a Sunday morning, I got in my Mustang and I drove to church. And the church was a little bit bigger than this one. There was probably 250 people in there. I sat in the middle section, three quarters of the way back, and the moment the music started, I began to cry. All the way through the service, I got tears streaming down my face. When the pastor finished the final amen, I couldn't get out of there quick enough. And I went home as fast as I could to my three roommates, none of them believers. We sat down and we watched MASH. That's what college students do. We watched MASH and we ate macaroni and cheese and hot dogs for lunch. And we laughed at MASH. About an hour and a half of being home, there's a knock at the door. My roommate, Alan Marsart, says, hey, Jim, it's for you. I go, for me? I don't know about anybody in Chicago. I go to the door, and there's a total stranger standing there. And he goes, oh, hi, Jim. You came to church this morning, didn't you? I filled out one of those little cards that you talked about. And within an hour and a half of me being home, they came to my door. Who does that kind of weird stuff? Seriously, who goes to somebody after an hour and a half after church and go knock on the door and say, thanks for coming to church today? He wouldn't leave. And he said, come back tonight. That was back in the days of Sunday night services. Remember those days? Come back tonight. And in order to get rid of him, I said, okay, I'll come back tonight. I go back and I sit in the same area in the middle section. The moment the music starts, I start to cry until the pastor finishes his message, I've got tears streaming down my face. I can't get out of there fast enough, man. I get in my Mustang, and I'm driving down this two-lane highway. It's dark outside, and it is pouring rain. I can't see. And then I realize it's raining inside the car. Because I am bawling like a baby. I can't see the road. It's getting blurry. So I pull over on the side of the road, and I shut the car off. And it's like God begins to speak to me. Jim, I've got a plan for your life. I've called you. I know what happened wasn't fair. How many of you know sometimes things happen in our lives that isn't fair? He said, but Jim, you don't understand. Someday you will understand. You know, I've never been a bar drinking person, but there's that, that thing came to my mind as I was sitting in the car. It was almost like God was saying, this is your last chance. Because your heart is becoming too hard. And the, but I said, I don't want to be a hypocrite because for the last three or four years, I was a hypocrite. I go to church on Sunday and everybody thought, this is little Jimmy and he loved Jesus. No, he didn't. And so I said, but I don't want to be a hypocrite anymore. And so I'm yelling, God's speaking, it's pouring rain, I'm bawling like a baby. And then I, I did this. I, I slammed my fist on the steering wheel and I said, if I say yes, I'll never turn back. And when I hit my steering wheel, it was like lights on, boom. I didn't say any kind of prayer. I made a statement, Lord, if I say yes, it's all in. And the lights came on, in a sense, in the car. The rain stopped outside. I stopped crying. I, I got in the car, and I, I drove back to my roommates, and I said, I'm quitting school tomorrow. And they go, what? I called my dad on the phone, and I said, hey, Dad, can I come back home? And being a good father, he said, Jim, did you get in trouble at school? <laughs> like, what did you do? And I said, no, I didn't get in trouble. Actually, I was a good student in school. I said, I, said, I met Jesus tonight. I didn't tell you, but my dad would pray for literally hours for me and my sisters in the morning when I would get up to go to school, he'd be on his knees by his bed praying. I'd come home in the evening time, he'd always have devotions, and at night he'd be praying all the time. And I guess, I, I guess he was praying for me. And it worked. So I went to, went, came back, went to North Central, married my high school sweetheart. We graduated in 1988, and here's where some of the fun stuff comes in. We did a missions trip my last year at North Central to England. We were there 10 days. At the end of the last service on the Sunday night, I was sitting up in the front. Now, if you ever go live in England, after every service, they have coffee, tea, and biscuits. It's amazing, man. So every time we had services, we had coffee, tea, and biscuits. 
So we're sitting there on the front step of the altar area, and Alan Johnson, who's the pastor, is sitting next to me, and he goes, Jim, he says, it's been a great 10 days. He said, do you think your wife and you would ever think of coming back just for two to three years? And I said, man, I don't know. My wife, because she was back home in Minnesota teaching first grade, first year of teaching in White Bear Lake. I said, I don't know, but in my heart, I'm thinking, this is it. So I get home, I fly home, and that was back in the days at the airport when you got off the plane, people could actually be at the gate. Remember those days? And they could greet you at the gate. My wife's standing at the gate, and we give each other a big hug and kiss. And as she's hugging me, she whispers in my ear, and she says, we're going to England, aren't we? And I looked at her, I said, how do you know? She said, God spoke to me while you were gone. And I said, well, that's a confirmation for me. Within like two, two months, all the paperwork was in. We were on our way in an airplane flying in a 747 on the upper deck flying overseas over to England. And the journey began. So here's the stories. We pastored in England for three years. We then came back. We were invited to go to Seattle. At the age of, I just turned 30 years old, they hired me on as the senior pastor of a church of 900 people in Seattle, Washington. I said, do you guys have any idea what you're doing? Because I don't. And we were there, and we had an amazing 12 years in England. And then in 19, or no, in 2001 or whatever it was, we ended up getting asked to come to Rochester, Minnesota. And uh, we had a great experience in Rochester. Uh, the pastor that was there before me had a moral failure. And so how many of you know that a church that goes through a moral failure is in trouble? And four years before that, they had a split. And so here I'm walking into this thing going, okay, God, what are you saying? And it's been an amazing journey. We were there, like I said, almost 18 years, and it was a great time. And now my peers decided that I should come to the district office and follow Greg Hickel. So there's my brief story. But you need to understand that's who I am. So when I'm talking today, you're going to understand a little bit more of why I'm so passionate about this. Has anyone ever heard in this room a guy by the name of Dawson Trotman? Anyone ever heard of the group called the Navigators? Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on with, with Dawson Trotman back in his heyday. Uh, he was born in Bisbee, Arizona in 1906. That's the same year that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've ever read any of his books, they were born in the same year. Uh, he did not grow up in a Christian family. Well, he says he grew up in a Christian family, but they never went to church. How many know that? So that means I'm religious, but I don't have a relationship with Jesus, right? By the time he turned 20, he was truly a pagan. He was living for himself. He was bootlegging liquor down from San Francisco during the Prohibition. He was stealing stuff on regularity. He was a pool shark in the local bars. But after getting caught drinking by the local law enforcement, he said one of those quick save me prayers. You ever done one of those save me? I'm going to jail. Save me. I'll give my life to you. And then when he got out of jail, what do you think he did? Turned his back on God. One day he was working in a lumberyard and the Holy Spirit began to speak to him. And as he was walking through the lumberyard, he asked himself this question, do I have everlasting life? And he realized he didn't know where he was going to go when he died. So that day at that lumberyard, he prayed and said, Jesus, would you come into my life? I want to have everlasting life. He started taking Bible college courses, and he was passionate about the Bible and Scripture. He was passionate about making disciples. He coined the phrase, and I'm going to quote this for you. It says, emotion is no substitute for action, but action is no substitute for production." you got to produce when you're winning people to Christ. Trotman became friends with a sailor by the name of Les Spencer. Les had heard that this guy, Dawson Trotman, could kind of disciple him and help him to become a soul winner. And so he said, would you disciple me? And so here comes this sailor, Les Spencer. Every day he was sitting down with Dawson Trotman, and Dawson Trotman began to teach him how to read the Bible, how to memorize Scripture, how to share your testimony, how to defend the faith, how to lead a Bible study with other people. And after he was with him for a number of weeks being discipled, then the Navy said it's time to go out into the seas. And so he got on a ship and he was gone for like 12 weeks. And when he came back after 12 weeks, what do you suppose he did? He brought 12 sailors with him to Dawson Trotman's apartment. And he said, the very thing you taught me, I led every one of these 12 sailors to the Lord. He said, can you disciple all of us now? 
So Dawson Trotman began to disciple the 12 new sailors, including Les Spencer. And guess what happened then? Those 12 sailors, when the time came for them to go on the ship, they left. And what do you suppose happened when they were out at sea? They led a bunch of more people to the Lord and came back and said, Dawson, we don't know what to do with these guys. Can you disciple them? At one time, he had over 50 people in his apartment discipling them in the things of God. Isn't that amazing? That's how the navigator started. Trotman said, you know what? He said, there's a gaping hole here. He said, the church is good at converting people, but they don't know how to disciple the people. And I'm going to put a quote, and if you guys have the quote, soul winners are not soul winners because of what they know, but because of who they know, Jesus, and how well they know him, Jesus, and how much they love others, because they know him, Jesus. So this morning, I, I thought, you know, I said to Pastor Dale, I said, man, I, I'm not sure what to preach on. And I felt the Holy Spirit say that your church today, in light of some of the recent events in your church, that I just need to take you back to the basics. Because sometimes we forget the basics. In my hand, I, I, I bet you I made this uh, 25 years ago back before we did PowerPoints. <laughs> this is a wheel. And what is a wheel good for? It's good for rolling. But a wheel has three main components. It has a hub, it has spokes, and it has the rim, right? Now, if you don't have a good hub, your wheel, no matter how good everything else is, if you don't have a good hub, it's eventually going to go like this and it's going to crack and break. You can have a good hub, but if you have a bad spoke, what happens to the rim? It bends, right? So you can have a good hub, you can have good spokes, but if you don't have a good rim, the rim is not going to work, and the tire, the rim itself, the, the wheel itself is going to crumble and die, in a sense. Dawson Trotman felt the Holy Spirit speak to him and said, I want you to use the wheel as an example for a spiritual life. Number one, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot these things down. The basics. Who's got to be the hub of your life? If Jesus isn't number one, it doesn't matter if you read the Bible and pray every day. If you're doing it just because it's a routine, it's going to take away because he has to be the focal point. He has to be the captain of your ship. He has to be the one that sits on your throne. Now, I do a message where I talk about the throne, and if I had a chair up here, which I'm not going to do it, but I would, back when we lived in England, the queen sat on a... Did she ever share the throne with anybody? But you know what we do as Christians? We have the throne, and we're sitting on it, and we say, I want to serve Jesus. Jesus, come and be the Lord of my life. And we slide over halfway on the chair, and we go, come on, Jesus, come and sit with me. Do you think Jesus is going to sit with you on the throne? When was the last time somebody sat with you on the throne? Pardon the terminology there. You don't share the throne. Some of you are getting it late, it looks like. Jesus does not share the throne. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. There is no really, let's see if this works. No, either you're on the throne or he's on the throne, period. I'm going to read to you from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It should be on the screen. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, Jesus... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, that's us. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He has to be the Lord of your life. This is why it's the basics. Sometimes the longer you're a Christian, you get lazy. And you don't realize it, but you start to give up the throne. You start to push him off and you put yourself back on. 
My dad, when I was a little boy, five years old, my dad sat me down one day and he said, Hey, Jim. He said, Suppose we have two dogs at our house. I can okay. He said, Suppose this dog, you feed him steaks and you take him for walks and give him fresh water and you play with him. And he said, This dog over here, you don't give water, food, you don't play with, you don't, you don't even associate with. He said, What's going to happen? I said, That dog's going to die, Dad. He goes, Exactly. What's going to happen to this one? I said, It's going to live. He said, Now reverse it. Starve this dog and feed this dog. What's going to happen? I said, that dog's going to die and that dog's going to live. And my dad looked at me and said, Jim, what dog are you going to feed when you're growing up? And I said, what do you mean? He said, either you're going to feed the flesh or you're going to feed the spirit. Now, if you feed the flesh, what happens to the spirit? It starts to die. But if you feed the spirit, what happens to the flesh? It starts to die. So maybe the title of the message this morning is, What Dog Are You Feeding? Isn't that a great example? What dog are you feeding? Which dog is getting the steaks and the walk and the fresh water? Who's sitting on the throne of your heart and life? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. It should be on the screen. He said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. We all want to go to heaven. But then he says, and to participate in his sufferings. You know, living a Christian life, sometimes there's suffering and pain. And then it says, becoming like him in his death. That means I have to die to myself. And then he says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. But the key is you have to die to yourself. I have been crucified. When was the last time you seen somebody crucified? You know what happens to somebody that's crucified? They die. So when you say I have been crucified with Christ, you're saying I may not die physically, but I die to my flesh, I die to who I am, and I make Jesus, I make God, I make him the center the focal point of my life. In John 14, verse 6, it tells us you must be born again. Well, in order to be born again, you've got to make him the Lord of your life. In Revelation 1.8, it tells us that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. So you start with him and you end with him. Your life continues because he is the focal point. Man, I've got to be careful because of time. Let's go to the, one of the first hub, or one of the first spokes. Write down in your notes the Word, the Scriptures, the Bible. The Bible. We need to be men and women of the Bible. Um, one of the things for me as a pastor is I always had people in my church and Rod, all the churches I've been at, people always give me books to read. I had stacks of books that I've never read but people wanted me to read them all. And I remember my pastor friend in England, Bob Smith, he said, Jim, when, this is when I was in my mid-20s, he said, Jim, always be a man of one book. Because what happens to us as pastors is we're always getting these books and we think about, well, if I read this, I'll become a better leader. And if I read this, I'll lead the church better. And if I do this, I'll be able to create new ministries. And we read all of these great books. They're great books. And then we forget about What? This book, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the, the book for me. Be a man or a woman of one book. You can read other books, but make sure the book is the book you're getting closest to. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not. Listen, as I'm reading all these leadership books and all these great books for churches, that doesn't stop me from sinning. But when I read this book, it convicts me in my personal life. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It directs me down the road that God wants me to go. So, if, if God is the hub, Jesus is the hub, we get into the scriptures, the scriptures will change your life. So, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us to let the word dwell in us. In fact, James says, and I love the book of James, James says, don't just 
listen or read it, but do what it says. Apply it to your life. All right, so the Bible, very important. Let's do the next one. And I'm sure you know what it is, don't you? What do you think goes along with the Scriptures? Prayer. Okay? So God is the focal point. He's the Lord of my life. I'm in the Bible now. I'm starting to pray. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will... If you can't humble yourself, you're not going to spend time in prayer. You have to humble yourselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their... Boy, does America need some healing right now. We are living in some of the most weird days I've ever imagined. And I'm only... I'm 56, My dad's 84, and he's like dumbfounded by what's going on in our nation today. It's a crazy, crazy world. But guess what? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will... Wow. Maybe if we spent a little bit more time praying rather than posting stuff on Facebook, we actually might see something happen. Prayer comes from a humble heart. Prayer gives you an opportunity to seek the face of the Lord. Prayer gives you the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to cause you to hunger more for Him. It's through prayer that God forgives you. So you're praying and you're saying, God, I love you and I want to serve you. And then the Holy Spirit says, hey, Jim, do you remember what you looked at yesterday? Do you remember that word you spoke, that negative action that you did? And all of a sudden, it's through prayer that God opens my eyes and says, you need to talk to me and ask for forgiveness. It's through prayer that God has the power to forgive us. It's through prayer that we have this thing called revival. It's supernatural. Yeah, Pastor Jim, I want to see miracles. We all want to see miracles. But you know what revival is? Revival is your life being altered for eternity. That's revival. Revival is when God changes a person's heart and they're never the same again. I've heard stories of revival in cities where they closed down the bars. The bars were all closing and churches were expanding. I mean, that's revival when that happens. Revival changes people's lives, but it starts with a hunger to make him number one. It starts to happen when you read the scriptures. It starts to happen when you spend time alone in prayer. He changes your life. All right, let me give you this next one. You ready for the third spoke? The third spoke is witnessing. Now, I didn't have enough room to spell it all out, but witnessing. Sharing your faith. The Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to anybody, everybody. Years ago, I heard that if in this room, that if you were actually to go and share your faith with somebody and lead them to Christ and disciple just one person in your lifetime, one person, you will do more than 80% of the Christians in the church today. So the challenge is so difficult. But, you know, we're not asking you to win the world. We're asking you to win one. Just like somebody won you and led you and discipled you, why don't you find one person in your lifetime? Say, God, bring them to my my attention across my path. Help me to share Jesus with them. And if they give their hearts to Christ, I'm going to disciple them. You will do more than 80% of the Christians in the world today. It's pretty crazy, actually. The next time you're at Super America or Quick Trip or the grocery store or DQ or maybe even at a sales barn. Any farmers in this room? Former farmers? No farmers? Wow. I'm a wannabe farmer. In fact, when I was down in Rochester for those 16 years, I had five mama cows and they would give me five babies every year and it was amazing. I loved it. So I'm a wannabe farmer, but it goes back when I was a kid. My grandpa worked at an elevator, and my uncle was a um, dairy farmer, and so I've kind of got this in my blood. Well, when we were in Seattle, we lived in a town called Enumclaw, which was about 20 minutes from the town that we pastored in, which was Auburn. And so the houses were like $25,000 less for the exact same house 20 minutes away. So my wife and I, young, first-time buyers, we bought this house in Enumclaw, and every time you drove on the main road, 
to head back to Auburn, on the right-hand side was this sales barn. So on a, on a Saturday, they would always have these auctions, in a sense, where they'd sell chickens and ducks and rabbits. And then they would sell the larger animals, sheep and pigs and goats. And then they would sell horses and cows. And man, I love going to the auction. One day, I took my two little girls, Janelle, probably five or six. Jenna would have probably been three. Took them to the auction at the sales barn. Now, how many of you know that sometimes the people at the sales barn aren't always the most spiritual people? And so we sat in this little arena with all these people, farmers and people sitting in there, and they're bringing in the cows, and they're, they're auctioning off, and people are bidding. It's kind of noisy in there. But sitting right behind us was a group of farmers in their bib overalls, and they're spitting chew, and they're telling dirty jokes, and they're talking about women in not a very nice way. And I'm sitting there with my two little girls, and I'm thinking, oh, I better get them out of here. You know, we better move. So we moved over on the other side of the sales barn seating. And about 10 minutes later, when they had a little break, what do you suppose? One of the farmers came over to me. And he said, hey, I just want to apologize. He said, yeah, we were kind of speaking not, not very good talk around your girls. And I said, yeah, I just, they don't hear that stuff at home. You know, they don't hear those. And so, I, yeah, I just, I didn't want them to hear that. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And then he looks at me because, he knows I'm not a farmer, right? He goes, what are you doing here anyways? And I said, well, I, I like cows, and my grandpa was an elevator manager in Minnesota, and he's going, oh. And then he started, well, what do you do for work? Now, how many of you know that's a, that's a keg of dynamite when you're a pastor? <laughs> and you're in a bar, you're in a sales bar where everyone's cussing and swearing the whole time, right? What do you, what do, you do for work? And I like do you really want to know? That's what I'm thinking to myself. Should I really tell you? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I work in Auburn. And I said, I'm the pastor of Calvary Temple Church. And his eyes got this big. Because now he realized he was taking God's name in vain during that time. And he, he realizes what he was doing is he was cussing and swearing in front of a vicar. He called me like the, the priest, the vicar. And I'm sitting there, and I said, hey, it's okay. I could tell he was nervous, you know. I said, hey, it's okay. I said, you didn't hurt my feelings. I'll still come back next week. And, I, and so I started talking to him about the church, that I came from Minnesota. I started sharing with him a little bit about who Jesus is. The very next day, I go to my church. We had three, three morning services. And in the third hour service, we had a lot of people that came from Enumclaw to the church. I called them the Enumclawites. Instead of the Israelites, the Enumclawites. And there was a guy in there from, from Enumclaw, and I shared, I said, hey, you guys, I said, I'm up front preaching, and I said, you won't believe what happened yesterday at the sales barn in Enumclaw, and I'm sharing the story. After I'm done with the message, I'm shaking hands. Every Sunday after the services, I'm shaking hands with everybody that's walking out the door, and here comes this guy from Enumclaw, and he shakes my hand, and he looks at me, and he goes, I know every single one of those farmers. I go, oh. He said, I'm upset. I go, what do you mean? He said, I'm upset that you go one time and you talk with this guy one time and you start telling him about church and Jesus. He said, I've known them since I was in high school. They don't even know I go to church. They don't even know I love Jesus. And he looked at me with a fierce look and he said, that changes as of today. I am going to tell my friends Because in order to have an effective spiritual life, you have to be a... If you don't have this, what happens to the wheel? What happens to the spoke? It's going to start to falter. And it's going to crush the wheel as a whole. All right. Are we having fun yet? All right. I just want to make sure I'm welcome back here after I leave today. Uh, let's go to the fourth one. Anyone know what this one is? Did they put it up there yet? Anyone know what this one is? Fellowship. All right, now we've got a complete spokes. Fellowship. What is fellowship? Some of you say, what is fellowship? Well, it's two fellows in the same ship. Fellowship is two fellows in the same ship. You want to get to know somebody? Go get in a canoe and shove out on Lake Superior for two or three days. 
you're going to get to know and you're going to have what's called fellowship together. You're going to learn everything you wanted to know about each other. That's fellowship. Now, I want to read to you from Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, what's the word? Fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. That would be another word for fellowship. And they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet, what's the word? Together. That's fellowship. In the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number. Oh, can I just pause for a minute? If you're actually living out the wheel, do you realize that you're going to be an effective believer? I know we're not done yet. We still have the rim. But if you're living this out, I guarantee you, you will be an effective believer. It says, Then the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Fellowship is all about being accountable. I don't know if you have anyone in your life besides your spouse. Have you given permission to someone else to say, Hey, you know what? What you said the other day, that wasn't good. Do you have anyone in your life that you've given them permission to speak truth into your life. That's called fellowship. You know, one of the things I'm learning since I've been in this new position is that pornography is a big deal in the world today. And how do we expect ministers that want to go into the ministry to be effective if they're viewing pornography? So what do you suppose one of the questions that we have to ask them in the interview process, have you looked at pornography in the last two years? The majority of them, if anyone ever says yes, the next question I have, do you have anyone in your life that you've given permission to tell you the hard stuff? And 90% of the time they look at me and say, I don't have anyone. Why? Because they're trying to hide it. But if you have somebody in your life that you're actually having fellowship with and you've given them permission to speak into your life, if you go out and you're hanging and you go have a meal together and go, go to Buffalo Wild Wings and you're sitting there talking and they look at you and say, hey, how's it going with your pornography? I couldn't do that with you this morning. You couldn't do that with me. We don't know each other. But if you have a friend that you're close to and they love you and they love God, you want them to look at you and say, hey, How's it going? Because you struggled with this in the past. How's it going? Hey, I'm doing really good. Thanks for asking. You got to have somebody in your life that you can have fellowship with to ask the tough questions. How's it going in your marriage? How are you treating your wife or your husband? Do you have somebody that's keeping you accountable in your spiritual walk? Fellowship is so, so important. All right, you ready for the final pieces now? This is all important, but guess what? None of it's going to happen unless we have what? Right? If you don't have obedience, so if, I'm not, if I don't have an obedient heart, I'm not going to share my faith. So here's, here's the deal. If we don't have obedience, this is what happens. I really don't feel like it. God opens the door for me to share with someone at Dairy Queen. I don't feel like it. Uh, fellowship, I don't want to be accountable because then they're going to know who I really am. I don't really have time to pray. I only pray at mealtime. I don't have time to pray. I got to go to work. And you know what? When you start stripping the wheel away, what happens to this one right here? And then what happens to the wheel? It starts to crumble. Oh, Lord, help us. This is called the basics. I'm going to take two chairs from you. Does anyone have a coffee cup laying? Not, not a hard cup, a styrofoam cup, a coffee paper cup nearby that's not full of coffee? I see that one. Is it empty? All right, I'm going to need that in a minute. 
I'm going to close with these two things and then we'll wrap it up. This right here is a car. You got to believe me now. This is a car and this is the driver's seat. And we get in the car and in our driving in life, somebody like Pastor Dale says on a Sunday morning you walk into church and he finishes his message and he says, hey, is there anybody here that would like to ask Jesus Christ to be Lord of their life? And you go, I do. And Dale says, that's wonderful. Surrender your life to Christ. How many of you remember the song by Carrie Underwood, Jesus take the? Right. So Dale says, hey, you need to let Jesus take the wheel. Not a problem. So I slide over to the passenger seat. Now who's driving the car? Jesus is driving the car. He took the wheel. I've surrendered my life to him. And we're driving one day, and life is amazing. I can't believe this Christian life is so incredible. But then one day, Jesus turns the blinker on to go left, and I don't know why I did it. I grabbed the wheel, and I said, no, go right. And what did Jesus do? He slams on the brakes. He puts it in park. He opens the door, and he gets out, and he says, hey, Jim, if you want to be the driver in your life, go ahead. And I go, I don't want to be the driver. I want you to be the driver. So what's the best answer? Jesus, take the, drive on, Lord, I'm, I'm yours. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say, and we're driving. He's doing, and you know, Jesus is a great driver, and he's driving me on journeys, and, and we're doing all these cool things, and I don't know why I did it, but he put the blinker on to turn right, and I reached over, and I grabbed the wheel, backseat driver, and what did Jesus do? He slams on the brakes, gets out of the car, and says, Jim, if you really want to drive, go ahead. I will not share the throne with you. So what's the answer? Take the keys out of the ignition. Walk to the back of the car. Open the trunk. Climb into the trunk. Hand Jesus the keys. Then close the trunk with you in it. And through the little crack, say, Jesus, take the... What did I just do? I died to myself. It's not my life. It's all about him. I need a, something sharp, like a pen, something that'll go through this. I don't want to wreck your pen if it's a nice one. Can I give you this too? Does this come off? Because it'll be hard for me to get through this. There we go. All right, final story. This cup represents your life. This is you. And you fill your cup with your spouse. Your spouse pours into you. Your kids pour into you. Your boss at work pours into you. Your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors, they all pour into you, which is all good. But then one day, you and your spouse get in an argument and they say something not very nice to you. And you know what they do? They put a hole in your cup and everything they poured in starts coming out. Your boss at work says you're not doing a very good job and you're thinking, I've been doing a great job. They shoot a hole in your cup. Your kids, sometimes kids are not very good and you want to believe in your kids. I got, man, I want to be careful with the time. I have an older daughter. She's now 30. But when she was 15, she was a liar. She was good at lying. And she would tell me things. Well, yeah, we're going to go do this. And one day, the Holy Spirit said to me, Jim, what your daughter just told you, she didn't tell you the truth. She said, Dad, we're going to go stay at Andrea's house tonight, and we're going to watch movies. We know Andrea. We know her parents. Sure, go ahead. Have a good time. So she got in the car. She must have been 16. She got in our little Honda Accord. She drove over to Andrea's, and they had dinner, and they were going to watch movies. And the Holy Spirit said, she's not watching movies. 
And as a good father, I was. About 10 o'clock at night, I got in my car and I drove over to Andrea's house. And my Honda was gone, nowhere to be seen. So I started driving around the town of Rochester looking for my car. I come into this neighborhood and there's like 60 cars parked on this street. How many of you know what I'm going to be describing here? There is a party. It's a Friday night at somebody's house at the Century High School, from the Century High School, and there is my Honda. So as only a good father does, I get on my cell phone. I call her up. I said, hey, Janelle, how's it going? She goes, it's going great, Dad. I said, how's the movies at Andrea's? Oh, we're having a blast at Andrea's. I said, that's funny. I went to Andrea's house and the car's not there and she's dead silent now. And I said, funny enough, I found your car with like 60 other cars on this neighborhood road. And she goes, I'll be right out, Dad. <laughs> Can I just tell you that my daughter's poured into my life that she's also shot holes in it. Did you know your best friends, sometimes your best friends, sometimes your pastor, not intentionally, sometimes your parents, and you know what happens? All the stuff that they poured in, guess what? It all comes out. Now, if I could have a new cup, there's only one person that will never shoot a hole in your cup. If you allow Jesus to fill your cup, he'll never drain it. And if your kid does something like not very bright, they can't take away what they didn't put in. It's like bonus stuff when your kids are good. But when they do something they shouldn't, or your spouse, or your friend, or your neighbor, they can't shoot a hole in the cup if they didn't fill it. So maybe the question today is, who's filling your cup? Wow. So simple, isn't it? I'm going to ask the band if they would just come back real quick. I know we're going to sing a couple songs or one song, but I'm going to let them lead us in one song and then I'm going to close us in prayer today. But these next couple minutes, I'll be coming back to the wheel in a sense. And I just want you to examine your life, if you would, and say, God, what are you saying to me about my life? Who is the hub? Is it me or is it him? Am I, am, I, am I utilizing the scripture and prayer and sharing my faith and fellowship and obedience? If you do, it'll change your life. Would you stand with me this morning? We're just going to sing this song and then I'll pop back up. You've been listening to a message from Life Assembly. Connect with us online at lifemn.org. And thanks for listening.